Welcome to Emerge Dynamics. Emerge Dynamics. The podcast for those who manage and invest in middle market private companies across the globe. globe. We're telling the stories of the unsung champions who take enormous risks every day to weave the fabric of our societies. Those who collectively, from the multi-trillion dollar largest market on the planet, we're diving into the dynamics of what makes some of them emerge from their peers and create incredible returns and impact on their communities. This is Emerge Dynamics. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Emerge Dynamics podcast. I am David Cusimano here without Eric Wingerger today. Normally, I would say that if it's just me talking, this is going to be a less exciting episode, but it is going to be a more exciting episode, actually, because of the charismatic guest that we have here with us today. We have here someone who I would say is probably, maybe not probably, maybe the most charismatic and creative business person that I know. I've had the great opportunity to become a good friend of his, to work with him on various things and really learn a lot from him. This is somebody who has started a business from scratch. He co-founded a business, started it from scratch, created a brand that became a known brand, went through ups and downs with the business, which I'm sure he'll be happy to share with us about, and then led this business through to an exit to a large multinational company. And today he's on to his next entrepreneurial adventure. So I know we have a lot of exciting things to talk about with him. He's joining us from, I'd say, uh, slightly warmer probably and sunnier than where most visitors are right now from Florida. Very excited here to welcome the co-founder of Vig Easy Bucha, Austin Sherman. Austin, so good to have you here. David, thanks so much for the introduction. I'm going to try really hard to live up to your expectations here, but thanks for having me on, on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I'm sure it will not be a problem living up to it. Austin, let's kick off. There's so much we can talk about, and there's so many pieces in your story, and they're all different interesting chapters, but let's begin at the beginning, if we could. I would love to hear, going back to the very beginning, why did you start your business? Why did you and Alexis start the business? What were you trying to accomplish what was the vision and how did it turn into something maybe different than what everyone else was doing? It's a great question. Look, first of all, thank you for the, the words about, about charisma. I was born very shy. As a child growing up, I was, a shy, I was shy. I was scared of the public. It's something that not a lot of people know about me. But over time, my dad put me in situations over my life that forced me to become comfortable being around strangers. And it was not a, a skill that I was born with. It was a very much a learned skill. And so he really pushed me just to talk and to ask questions, be inquisitive, be generally interested in what people have to say. And so that charm, which I've used certainly to my advantage in my entrepreneurial ventures, it was a learned behavior. And so if you're listening to this, it is possible that you can pick up skills during your life that can serve you well in your entrepreneurial ventures. So moved to New Orleans and I did not have a job, to be honest. I knew that I wanted to start a business. And over the years, at this point, I was in my late 20s. I had several failed ventures. And my sister was teaching me how to make kombucha at home. She was a nurse. She couldn't afford $4 a bottle. And she taught me how to make this product. 
And so it was born out of necessity because I needed, I needed something to do. <laughs> and I was having a difficult time landing a job. I think people that were <laughs> looking to hire me knew that I was a risk taker and someone that liked to give their opinions even when they were, when I was unprompted. And so the idea was born out of my apartment. It was I mean, extremely humble beginnings. Uh, we started off with a couple hundred bucks and a big dream and a big vision. And all along the way, I would say the most important component of my continued success as we grew the business was to cherish every win, no matter how small or how big. When we sold, when I sold my first bottle, I thought, I can't believe that somebody paid for this that I made, you know, and then it was my first case and then my first five cases and then my first pallet and then my first truckload and then my first 10 truckloads. At every spot in the journey, it was very important to me to celebrate those milestone wins, no matter how small. And and that's what kept me grounded, kept me excited. It kept me focused on the big picture and, and the vision, which was to win in a highly competitive space. And so, you know, I would encourage those listening to no matter what stage you are of building a business, there's always more to achieve. And it's so important to just to honor and be in the moment and cherish those small wins along along your journey. So Austin, as you started selling those cases, as you're building this business, what was it do you think that allowed, made people select your kombucha and not others? There's so, a lot of them out there. It's a, yeah, exactly. And at that point, I was a little late to the game, even though it was early in the category. By that point, there were at least 100 competitors. And I knew that taste had to rule all. Mm-hmm. So two things, which I think was a, a winning part of our formula. One is the flavor. We, I spent months locked in a kitchen trying to dial in that flavor, something that was approachable and appealing. The largest kombucha company in that point had paved the way for the industry, but his flavor profile was was very acidic. It was almost like drinking uh, apple cider vinegar. And a lot of people, having tried the category for the first time in kombucha trying his, were turned off. And so I had to work really hard to bring them back in to learn how to appreciate a good beverage that's good for you. And the second part of that was being very clear and precise on why we're building the business. And we wanted to improve people's lives through offering a better for you product that we believed in at an attractive price point. And then B, we were very careful about our hiring practices. We partnered with a program called Strive and their job was to help educate and get people get back to work that maybe had some checkered past that could have fallen into some trouble with the law But what we found is that gave us a lot of purpose and drive for getting up early, working hard, working late, seeing that some of these these people's lives were changed because they were given a chance at gainful employment when maybe many other companies would shut the door and not even let them in, in the front door to apply. That gave us a lot of purpose. And so it was like adding jet fuel to an engine as far as purpose and vision. So you had the business up and running. You had a fantastic purpose. You're doing good things for people. And I know at some point you felt that you needed to raise some money. Like you said, you started with a few hundred dollars. That didn't get you all the way through your whole growth trajectory. When did you know that you needed extra capital and how did you go about it? Sure. So early on in our business, we used free cash flow to support the business. And <laughs> it's comical because my early, early customers, I would make them either prepay or if, mm-hmm. if I had to give them terms, they were egregious, you know, in the favor of, of me and my company because I couldn't <laughs> afford to give someone 30 or 60 day terms. And so I would say, look, this is going to be the next big thing. This is a part of the selling process. This is going to be a part of, this is going to be the next big thing. 
and beverage. Get on board now, become a partner now, but I need you to pay me <laughs> when I drop off product. And then on the other side, on the supplier side, I would negotiate terms, you know, as hard as I could. So I'm trying to trying to benefit from kind of both sides of that of that negotiation. But at some point, I was able to get into a buyer meeting at Publix and I was successful. And so we went from about 400 stores concentrated in Gulf South or Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and the Panhandle of Florida. And we were looking at an expansion of an additional 1,200 stores in a matter of 90 days. And so I needed equipment. I needed raw materials. I needed to staff up. That's when I knew I needed to raise cash. And when you have something exciting to share with investors, and we did at that point, hey, we're just a five-person team. Now we're going to a 15-person team. The first order from Publix was in my entire first year's amount of revenue. And that was just one week of ordering from Publix. So growth and excitement and good news always lends itself to good conversations with potential investors. And we had been talking to potential investors for the better part of a year, year and a half. We weren't ready. And in some cases, they weren't ready to invest because it was too early and too risky. And so my advice is that it's never too early to start thinking about raising capital. If you think that you may want to in the near future, it takes the better part of six months, six to 12 months to properly raise capital outside of friends and family. And so I asked for introductions to high net worth individuals. We started working with someone that had an investment banking background to really formalize and and structure how that raise, how that raise looked like from a valuation perspective and a term perspective. And at every stage, the good news usually meant that I, we would go out and raise more capital. In retrospect, I wish I would have raised two years worth of capital in, in one go and done a much larger raise and potentially gotten siphoned off some of my, my own equity. But, you know, lessons learned. <laughs> I, I'm not going to follow that same principle that I follow with Big Easy with my future endeavors. But sometimes you just need to learn by doing. And I'm, I'm certainly, certainly one of those folks. And what was it, Austin, that got them to write the check, right? You said you, you were working with some investors, you started raising money, having dialogue with people months in advance. At some point, they said, I think you're ready. I'm ready. Here's my money. Yeah, you know, I'm very fortunate. My dad, he was a fundraiser for a major university in Florida. And I watched him raise money. At the end of his career, he probably raised half a billion dollars for the university. It was a substantial amount of money. I never witnessed him ask for money. He just added value into people's lives, talked about the value proposition in a proposed transaction in the sense of that high net worth individual donate money to the university. And it came natural to him to just add value, talk about the good things, be a good host. Maybe you get to know the donor individually as humans and then show kind of the product. And then usually he would wait for the phone to ring and it would. And that's I tried really hard to mimic those values. I'm not a huge fan of the hard sell. But uh, for me, it was all about, I want to raise money from good people that can add value outside of capital. And I would seed conversations for months before we closed rounds. And then when something, when I had positive news to share, I would say, hey, now it's time for growth capital. And they were much more willing to write checks and close out rounds when we had a lot of good news to present. Excellent. I know, Austin, that's fantastic narrative that I know is going to resonate with so many people because I know there's so many people that just can't get over that hump right there, right? It's like, how do I, I want to raise money now. Now, how do I actually go from here to, there's a check in my bank account. So I think that's going to be really helpful for folks 
So you're up, you're running, you've raised money, business is growing, your footprint is getting larger. And we know you came up to an exit and you were able to exit to a large multinational company. People are going to be so intrigued by that. I know we can't share any of the terms of the transaction, of course, but what can you tell us about what that was like for you? Mm-hmm. Going through that, you know, this is your baby. You and your wife started this. Suddenly there's other investors in there. People have a different opinions about when and how and the valuation and walk us through that journey. It's the most exciting part. And I think you've saved the best for last for this episode. Step one was getting organized from a financial perspective. And that's where you and Eric and Emerge Dynamics played a critical role. We had sold somewhere between 12 and $13 million in the aggregate of kombucha with a bookkeeper that had never kept the books. <laughs> and so we, we were very much a sales and marketing organization. And I, I didn't understand the value of having, you know, your uh, blocking and tackling and strategic guidance from financial leadership. So if you're an entrepreneur out there, there's two things you likely can't afford, but you desperately need. And, and that's good financial leadership in accounting and good legal help. And, you know, what I learned having sold the business, there's a few key points. One, the thought that somebody is going to approach you to buy you is a farce, in my opinion. Those are unicorn situations, usually companies that are marketed very well, and somebody wants to pick them off early. It rarely happens, in my experience, that an entrepreneur gets a random call for someone to buy their company and, and that it's serious. No different than, than buying a house, right? If we're buying a house in a neighborhood, we don't just start knocking on doors. That's not the proper way to go buying a house. You're going to get a lot of, I'm not interested. So you need to find houses that are marketable, that are marketed, that are on Zillow, on Realtor.com. Number two, due diligence is awful. And I've been warned. <laughs> I've been warned by several friends that have sold their businesses or raised money from institutional investors. And man, you really need a village. You need people that can answer questions quickly, that are detailed, that are organized. David, you played a huge part in that with our transaction. Being able to explain certain things that's in the spirit of full transparency, but is not saying, hey, the sky's falling too, right? It's a balance. I think due diligence, it's one of those things that very few executives and entrepreneurs go through, but you learn a lot about yourself and a lot about others that you're, you're in business with. You know, the third thing I think what's important is don't be afraid to walk away from a transaction and start to look at other options. There was a point in the middle of our, of our negotiations with this company that it started to feel like things were stalling. And so we began having conversations with other, other companies and there was a high level of interest for companies to come in as investors and continue growing the business under the existing leadership. And so there's always another option, right? I know com- some companies, they're intentionally built to sell to one particular or two particular strategics. And, mm-hmm. and again, those are outliers. But really, we want to keep our options open as long as possible. That would be the ultimate goal. And usually that leads to the best outcome for the existing shareholders. Fantastic. And so you did have an exit. Finally, a transaction did go through. And I know you stayed with the company for a little while. And tell us, Austin, what are you up to today? So I worked for the company and they kept me around for six months and then fired me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was uh, I, like the company that purchased the Geezy, they're fantastic people. 
but I frustrated them. They frustrated me. It was just not working. I am wired to build things. I'm wired to take risks. That's just who I am. I don't belong in a, in a company that has, you know, a thousand employees. That's just not my speed. That's a whole special type of human that can operate in those environments that it takes it takes a long time to make, for me, from, from my perspective, very easy decisions. And so it was actually a very nice thing to have an end date, right? I took some time off and enjoyed the sunshine. I enjoyed getting, spending time with family and friends and my daughter. We got to be present in my daughter's life for the first time since she was born. She was four when we sold the business. And that was a huge blessing. That was a gift from God. Then I started to drive people crazy and I thought I should get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a little bit too much uh, tequila during the week. And hey, people work our age. You know, there's not a lot of people Monday through Thursday that can hang out and go get a cocktail, you know, (laughs) or play golf. (laughs) Your your service area of friends shrinks really quick. Uh, (laughs) And I miss the office environment. I miss the building environment. And so uh, I've got two startups in the works. One is a tequila company we're really excited about. And the other, trying to diverse with the intention of diversifying my portfolio, I'm getting into the chemical business. And so we sell uh, stone and paper sealer to general contractors. It's it's very ugly, but very fun and rewarding and can generate some some good cash. And on the side, I'm building my personal brand. So if you're listening, my my Instagram is underscore Austin Sherman. I'm starting to add value to people's lives through digital media. It's one of my passions in life is is to help entrepreneurs, much like you helped me, David. That's a goal of mine is that at the end of my life, I would love for someone to say, this was a helpful individual. (laughs) That would be a... Accomplished that one already. (laughs) Appreciate that. So a lot of stuff going. I've learned that I don't do well sitting at home doing nothing. It causes a lot of problems. So the busier I am, the happier I am, and the more I get to, to help people crush their goals. I think certainly you had a better tan shortly after the exit. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, I lived in you know I lived in a manufacturing plant for six years under halogen lights. You don't get a lot of sun from halogen lights. So I learned. My friends, when I moved back to Florida, they said you're kind of like see through, bro. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, Austin, these are all just fantastic stories. I know everyone is going to love hearing this and want more of it. I know they're going to want to reach out to you. I will also put your information here in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to follow you. Any final words of wisdom? I know you said there's some things you're not going to repeat in your next venture that you did in your last venture. So many people would love to have the experience you have before embarking on their entrepreneurial journey. What final things could you leave with people? I'm going to leave your listeners with a story that changed my life forever. We were very close to raising a substantial amount of capital from the ownership family that managed and owned the New Orleans Saints and the New Orleans Pelicans. We were invited to a game. We met with the ownership. We met with the leadership. Effectively, there are seven people that run that empire. Out of seven of those amazing humans that I met and encountered, six of them were former CFOs or CPAs. They were all financially minded. And Tom Benson, who is now uh, deceased, he was a great human, philanthropic, very generous. He was gas pedal. And he knew he was full of so much gas that he needed six brake pedals to his (laughs) his gas pedal. (laughs) And so I just encourage if you're a risk taker and you're listening, if you are 
if you think of the world as nothing but opportunity, you're a lot like me. You need someone to say, okay, those are all great ideas. A, how do we implement them? B, how do we keep you out of jail? And C, how do we keep you from owing the IRS a ton of money? Those three things, <laughs> because we, you know the eternal optimist is great, but you need balance. And you, you need balance with your team and balance with your advisory panel. So I highly encourage you, if you have a growth mindset, and that's where you tend to live your daily, uh, surround yourself with those that can provide you the right amount of challenge. Excellent. So make sure you've got the right brake pedals to your gas pedal. Surround okay. yourself with a good team with skill sets that maybe complement but aren't the same as yours. That's it. Yes. Fantastic. Austin. Austin Sherman, gas pedal extraordinaire. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being here. As always, a pleasure chatting with you. I can't wait to see where these next ventures take you. Thanks, David. Appreciate it.